Hey, everybody. Welcome to our Advent mini-season of Sunday School, a Bible study podcast brought to you by The Pillar. I'm your host, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by our Sunday School teacher, the rabbi himself, Dr. Scott Powell, getting ready for Christmas, getting deep into Advent. Scott's making his list. He's checking it twice. And today on Sunday School, we are going to spend this episode talking about one of the three couples we're talking about this season. We are going to talk about Mary and Joseph, the Holy Family. Or at least the Holy Couple. Is that the Holy Couple? Yeah, that's that right? fair to say. Yeah, Absolutely. Okay. So in our last episode of this Advent mini-season, we talked about Elizabeth and Zechariah. We're going to talk more about them, actually. But this... In Elizabeth will show back Elizabeth up. is coming back. We've Zachariah's got a lot to mute. say. He's, yeah, we've he's got a lot to say about Elizabeth. Week. Zachariah doesn't. But in this episode, we are going to talk about Mary and Joseph. And the readings for this week are what, Scott? What are we reading? So our readings for this week are coming from Luke chapter 1, verse 26 through 56. And then chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. Hi, producer Kate Oliveira here. If you've already done the readings for this week's episode, you can skip ahead to about the six-minute mark. If you haven't done the readings, or if you just like listening to them from our very own Ed Condon, here's Ed with today's reading. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days Mary arose and went with haste to the till country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown the strength of his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. 
This was the first registration while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each in his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that they had been told concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So one of the things that's actually, uh, I think, really remarkable and interesting about the Gospel of Luke is that Luke is full of what we could call ironic reversals. So things in the Gospel of Luke are never exactly as you'd expect them to be. So we'll, we'll look a little bit today at what's called Mary's Magnificat. So the other thing I want to mention about those three couples that you mentioned in the intro. So we have Zechariah and Elizabeth, our priestly couple. Mm-hmm. And we're looking at Mary and Joseph, who are the royal couple, the kingly couple. And the next week, we'll look at Simeon and Anna, our prophetic couple. Mm-hmm. But each one member of each of the couples will, throughout the course of their narrative, sing a song, essentially. Oh. And each of those songs, those hymns, will actually make it into the life of the church. They make it in the liturgy of the hours, right? So Zechariah, as soon as he can speak again, he sings the canticle of Zechariah, right? right. So he, he says the name of John, which is the end of the Aaronic blessing. Yeah, correct. And then he says the canticle of Zechariah. Yes, that's right. Yeah, oh, a couple cool. of verses later. Yeah, the Canticle of Zechariah, which is all about how God has brought to fruition all of the things he promised that he would do, all mm-hmm. the things that we had hoped for and longed for throughout the Old Testament, like we looked at last week. It's all come to pass. This and is like, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. Exactly be, right. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Wow. So he has the Canticle of Zechariah. Mary will have the Magnificat, mm-hmm. which will also be her version of how God has been faithful to what he said he would do. My soul proclaims the greatness exactly of the Lord. Right. My spirit rejoices in God. My Savior. Absolutely right. And then uh, Simeon, Prophet Simeon, will sing the Nuke Dimittis, right? The, mm-hmm. the uh, now you can let your servant go in peace, for my eyes have seen the consolation, right. which is a reference to the book of Isaiah. So we'll look at that next week. Cool. But those hymns actually help to kind of frame and round out all those narratives. So in Mary's case, which we'll, again, look at the Magnificat, one of the themes of the Magnificat 
is everything being reversed, right? You have cast down the mighty from their thrones. You've lifted up the lowly, the rich you have sent away, the hungry you have filled. Everything is reversed in the Magnificat. And so even in Mary's story herself, there's a bit of a reversal. So we started last week with the first annunciation. And what, what you basically have is you have Gabriel showing up a couple times. He'll show up to Joseph as well. But you have him showing up with two different announcements of varying, you could say, levels of weight or importance, right? So there's an announcement made to Zechariah and there's an announcement made to Mary. Which one is the more important, the weightier announcement? Well, in a certain way, okay, so the announcement to Zechariah is the uh, thing you have been, Israel has been praying for has been fulfilled. Yes. And your right. personal intention. And right. then in Mary, it's like, and this is how. Well, in a certain sense, so Zechariah is the preparatory the covenant, one. Right? It is, it, and they both are, but, but Zacharias is a preparatory. Mm-hmm. So in the, uh, we didn't mention this last week, but just parenthetically, um, the very last prophet in the Old Testament is a, a guy called Malachi. And the very last thing that the very last prophet says in the Old Testament is that before the Messiah comes, you should be looking for Elijah to return. And so John oh. the Baptist is going to take on the identity of Elijah. He's going to dress like Elijah and act like Elijah. And Jesus will even say he's Elijah because yeah. everyone recognizes because Malachi, before the Messiah comes, Elijah has to come first. Yeah. If there weren't a cool theological reason why John the Baptist were named John the Baptist, you almost would wonder if his name might have been Elijah. Elijah. Yeah. And, and it's unclear to me, actually, whether uh, John the Baptist fully sees himself this way or not. But Jesus certainly does. Yeah. But again, it's all preparatory. It's laying the groundwork. He's, he's, in a certain sense, the voice and the messenger of the Old Testament proclaiming what's coming. But I guess my point in that is... If you would imagine kind of the prep announcement, the pre-announcement, and the big news itself, you'd imagine the bigger announcement coming to the priest in Jerusalem in the capital city, you know, the city of David, the city of kings. You'd imagine that would be the bigger Especially announcement. on the biggest day of his life. On the biggest day of his life. And, you know, maybe the, the other announcement or the preparatory or the kind of subsequent announcements would come to the backwoods village of Nazareth, which was not a significant town in the ancient world. It was small. It was backwoods. It was made fun of a lot, even as some of the apostles attest to in the Gospels. And, you know, a 13, 14, maybe 15-year-old girl who was not terribly historically significant. Uh You would imagine the bigger announcement coming to the priest in Jerusalem, but it doesn't. The far bigger announcement comes to the peasant girl in the backwoods town, because that's how— so one of the things the gospel is going to reveal, that's how God tends to work. He reverses our expectations. He yeah. doesn't show up exactly how we want him to. So there's something really, really beautiful about that, um, that he comes to Mary in this kind of surprising way. So there's lots of contrast, and her Magnificat actually embodies that, or it, it puts that concept into song in a very real sense. So what do we find out about Mary? We're in chapter 1, and I'm going to look at verse 26. So in the sixth month, in the sixth month of what? In the because it just kind of throws you with a timestamp, and it doesn't exactly tell you what it is. But I think we can deduce it. June. I think it's actually not uh, just a calendar year oh, timestamp. Oh, could stamp. it be the pro- oh, verse twenty four? After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, yeah, and for good. five months she hid herself, saying, "Thus the Lord has done to me in the days when He looked on me to take away my reproach among men." So for five months Elizabeth is hiding herself. Yeah. Then, yeah. in the sixth month, it's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Exactly right. It's hey. the sixth month of her pregnancy. Very good. Yeah. Which, which you know, if you don't read the context, you'll kind of miss. But that's really important for something I'm going to show you in a little bit. So in the sixth month of her cousin, Elizabeth's pregnancy, now there's some traditions about what their relationship exactly was, which will be borne out a little bit more. It appears that Elizabeth, well, it doesn't appear. She is obviously much older than Mary. Remember, she was older. Mary's quite young. So there's some traditions that suggest that she was almost like a mother to Mary. Oh, wow. In a certain sense. So while Elizabeth is pregnant in her sixth month, 
The angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed, and that's a really important line, a virgin betrothed, which again, I know we're familiar with a lot of this stuff, but betrothal is a really interesting thing and it's significant for what happens next. Betrothal is not just, you know, the Jewish version of engagement. It's like unconsummated marriage, right? You've contracted the legal right. element of marriage, exchanged yeah. your consent, but not yet consummated the marriage. Yeah, that, you really know your betrothal. <laughs> I, as it happens, I'm a canon lawyer, Scott, when we're getting close to marriage law. Are there canon laws about betrothal? There have been at various oh, times. There have been okay. at various times. And in various ways, the church does recognize, yeah. n- not so much anymore, but at various periods in the church's history, the church has recognized this. But in yeah. a certain way, I think when Mary and Joseph get betrothed, they exchange their consent. Yeah, absolutely So consent right. is the thing which makes marriage. So in the church's view, they would have contracted marriage at that moment of betrothal. That's right, which is really important because remember, Joseph, when he's freaking out later on, thinks he has to divorce her. Right. Which is different than just breaking off breaking the engagement. Breaking off the engagement. Right? No, yeah. there's something formal that's already been done. Right. Which for a couple of reasons, I think that's important. So she's betrothed to this uh, man named Joseph, who is the house of David. So in other words, he is of the royal family, the house of David. And remember, this is the royal family that no one knows where it is. But it's because it's lost, right? I mean, would would Joseph have known that he was of the royal family? Yeah, see, I think Joseph would have known that he's of the royal family, and I bet his relatives would have known as well. I bet Mary would have known. But if you're part of the royal family and there is a false king naming himself the king of the Jews yeah. who is lording his power over you, who you know will kill anybody who's against him at the drop of a hat— you might not want to be too public about the fact that you are the true descendant of the Davidic kingship. Plus, that's a long—like, when did the kingship end? Like, uh, The 500s. Okay, so it, we're 500s. talking— Well, it was lost. And again, what Matthew's genealogy—so Matthew begins with that long genealogy. What Matthew makes clear is it was never lost, that there is an unbroken line all the way back to the Babylonian exile that nobody actually knew about. Yeah. So when Matthew gives his genealogy, which is the part of— you know, the scriptures that most of us skip over, we only remember because of the poor lector who has to deal with it at Mass, it would have been really, really big news for the first century because they'd never heard a lot of those names. Oh, it and it would like, have tied directly back. It would be like, now George Washington didn't have any children exactly, but he, he adopted some stepchildren, things like that. But it would be like if George Washington had a child and then to start off my book and say that someone was going to be important in America, yeah. I wrote, traced a lineage of them back to George Washington right. in a direct line. Yeah, yeah, that that, that makes sense. Or say, you know, Pope Francis dies, Pope Benedict dies, we lose the papacy for hundreds of years, and secretly, unbeknownst to the world, there is apostolic authority being passed down. Uh Someone is passing down, but the pope has to go into hiding for some reason. And 100 years from now, it's revealed like, oh no, this guy was actually ordained by this guy, who was ordained by that guy, who was ordained by that guy, and there has been an unbroken line of succession. I hope Tom Clancy will write that. (laughs) Sounds amazing. It's it's a a different genre, but it's more akin to that kind of a thing. Oh my gosh, there is a king, but nobody knows. So anyway, all that is to say, I think Joseph would have known his identity. Yeah, not just he's from an important family, but he is the lot from the line of anointed kings. Yeah, he's the one. He yeah. is literally the heir apparent yeah. to the throne, which I don't know if that's the right term for this yeah, or sure, not, but so. he's the one. So that's significant, which Luke doesn't say. It just says he's of the house of David, but yeah. Matthew, if we take him in tandem, we know. And the virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her, that's Gabriel, and said, Hail, full of grace. What's, what's kind of cool about this chapter of Luke is that we get a good half of the Hail Mary prayer. Yeah. And it's spoken by two different people. It's, well, an angel and then a person. So, hail, full of grace, the Lord is with you. So, uh, just a word on that line. There's been a lot uh, theologically that's been made of this phrase. It's a really unique phrase in Greek, in Koine Greek, which is the language we're using. 
I've read Bible translations that say, oh, hail, um, my wife and I have a, a wonderful Bible that we got from like the 70s or 80s, and it says, hail, O most favored lady, or something like that, <laughs> which we always kind of use as a joke. But, uh-huh. but what it's saying is it's actually giving a title that's actually not really a title. It's renaming Mary in a certain sense. And what, what the angel says in Greek, it's the word kekiritomene. And kikiri told me now, not to get into the, the nerdy grammarness of this, but it's in the past perfect tense, and it's a participle. Mm-hmm. It's a past perfect passive participle, which is a bit of a mouthful, right? But in other words, what, we, don't, we don't have the perfect tense in English. We have past, present, and future. But in the Greek language, they have something that's also called the perfect tense, which is something that was done in the past, but totally completed. Like, you know, you having could, been blessed. Hail having, having been Having been totally in the past and completed blessed. Oh. It's also in the passive tense, so it's something that's happened right. to her, right? But in other words, it's being given as a name. So it's, hail you who have been totally and completely filled with grace. Having been filled with grace, which is where a lot of uh, the Catholic understanding of Mary's um, sinlessness, her immaculate conception comes from, because this is something that has not been in process, but has been completed past tense. You are someone filled to entirety with God's grace. And that's the name he actually gives her. That's the title. And then the next line is, the Lord is with you. So the way that uh, this kind of lays out, hail full of grace, the Lord is with you. And then it says in verse 29, but she was greatly troubled at the saying, and she considered in her mind what sort of greeting this might be, partially because this is not a title that's been given to anybody as far as I know. Yeah. So that would be confusing, but she's troubled. And all of a sudden now we should be reminded a little bit of Zechariah, who was also troubled by the angel, a little bit troubled by the message. But there's a clear difference in what's going on here. Um, One of the things that's interesting about what the angel says, when he says the Lord is with you, there's a pretty important pedigree in the Old Testament for that, that term. And oftentimes, maybe not exclusively, but most of the time you see that term used, the Lord is with you. It's God speaking to someone who's going to have a great and really difficult mission ahead of them. So in other words, he says to Moses, as he has to go speak to Pharaoh and tell him to let his people free, the Lord will be with you. He says to Jeremiah, when he has to call out the hypocrisy of the temple, the Lord will be with you. To Elijah, to all the people who are going to have the worst jobs, in Mm. other words, who have great monumental tasks that will entail great suffering. He assures them the Lord is with you. So if Mary knows her scriptures, which I assume she does, Hearing an angel say, the Lord is with you, is a big red flag of like, oh, no, <laughs> what's yeah, what's right. this going to be? Yeah. Something's going to be asked of me. So she's not afraid, I think, for the same reason that Zechariah was. She's not afraid. Zechariah seemed to be afraid because he saw an angel. She seems to be afraid because of the message that's about to be revealed, right? So he says, uh, she's greatly troubled. She considered in her mind. And the angel said to her, don't be afraid. So he reassures her, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You will call his name Jesus. And then he goes on to describe Jesus. It says, it, which is similar to what happened to Zechariah. We had a description of John the Baptist. And now we have a shorter description of Jesus. And it says, he will be great. His name will be called Uh, He will be called the son of the most high. The Lord will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end, which is all pretty much lifted from 2 Samuel chapter 7, which is significant because that was the covenant that God swore with David, that his throne and that his descendancy would rule over the house of Israel forever. And that eventually there would be a descendant that would kind of bring to fruition all the things that God had promised all the way back to the time of Abraham. So when Mary is being told this by the angel, it's not just, oh, you're going to have the son. He's going to be doing really cool things. She's hearing the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant given back in 2 Samuel 7, which again 
if you're a Jew living in the days of Herod in this particular time, this is a really painful time where everybody's asking the question, how much longer until this all comes about? Yeah. We, um, talked last time about this idea of the presence of God, the glory cloud, the Shekinah, leaving the temple, which is one of the most visible markers that God's presence seems to have departed from the people of Israel. But along with that came a whole bunch of other ancillary things, like a pagan nation lording over us, not having a true Davidic king on the throne, not being in control of our land. So all of these things in the Jewish mind were kind of meant to come, they were meant to coalesce. We would know that God's presence had returned to us when we had a king again. We would know God's presence returned to us when we had our land again. We would know God's presence returned to us when evil was ultimately defeated. And so she's being told, okay, the king is coming, which suggests a lot of important things. Actually, in the, the Gospel of Matthew, you, which we're not in right now. But you remember when the in the Gospel of Matthew, when the angel appears to Mary, we get a piece of information that Luke doesn't give us. He says that you're going to have a son and his name will be what? Do you remember what Matthew says? Emmanuel. Emmanuel, which means? Um, God is with us. God is with us, which, you know, we're all used to hearing because we've heard it a million times. And so I think it's easy to forget that that's actually an answer to a question on the hearts of all of Israel. Which is literally, is, is God actually yeah. with us? He took right. off. We saw the presence leave. Has God abandoned us? Right. And notice that the name is not God will be with you. It's God is, is with present you. tense yeah. with you. Which yeah, I think totally. is really significant. So this child is going to be the visible sign of that. And so Mary said to the angel, now I think this is really interesting. How can this be since I have no husband? Which is weird, right? Why is that weird? O canon lawyer. My canon lawyer. Well, she's she is she has been betrothed. She has, but a she, husband. But she hasn't consum. But the betrothal is pre consummation, effectively. Absolutely. But I'm still troubled by what she says here a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. She says I have no husband, which which on some level I'm not picking apart the scriptures, but I think that what it suggests is that there's something more underneath the surface here, right? Because you you sort of allude to something similar with this with Zachariah and Elizabeth last time, but Zachariah is told by the angel not that. There's kind of this – He doesn't. there's not a suggestion of a kind of miraculous in that moment your wife is all of a sudden pregnant. Bam, your wife's pregnant. It says that she will be. In the human some mode point, of things. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. She will be pregnant. Right. Which is still surprising because of the infertility, but it's not the kind of miraculous instantaneous thing. Mary hasn't found out. The angel has not said that this is going to be a miraculous birth yet. She'll find that out later. Right. For now, all the angel has said – is that you will, future tense, conceive, and you will, future tense, bear a son. And he's going to be all oh, these things. So she, so the natural thing to think would be, oh, I guess once my marriage is consummated, then I will have, bear, this, have child. this child. Now, it's surpri- the identity is surprising, right. but it shouldn't be that surprising that she's going to have a child. Yeah, it's right? like any engaged girl, yeah. if you're like, well, you're going to have sons, they're like, well, I understand how that will <laughs> Yeah, exactly right. I have some knowledge of human biology here. And right. without, without putting too much mileage into this, this is one of the, this is a very mysterious line to me. Uh-huh. And it's one of the places the church has kind of historically turned to say, oh, there's something else going on with Mary. And what it seems to be, and there's a longstanding tradition in the church, a lot of the fathers of the church held to this, that Mary either had decided recently through prayer, discernment, that she was never going to consummate the marriage. Uh-huh. That because of some vow that maybe she had recently made or was planning on making, that she knew that because of a, a call she felt God was leading her towards, she wasn't going to consummate this marriage. I don't know if she told Joseph that or not. Right. But w- the only thing that kind of makes sense to me in this is that she had sort of made a 
promise to God of herself. And now God seems to be saying something that doesn't quite jive with that. Yeah, that makes total sense. Which, again, suggests something about Mary's perpetual virginity. Right. This was sort of always in the cards. Again, I don't know if Joseph knows about this or not. And it would have to be, right? Because the angel didn't tell Mary in the context of any of this. Exactly. And you're blessed to be able to remain a perpetual virgin, right? No. The, the angel didn't tell Mary that. Right. So right. that had to have been a decision made before or after this. And I suppose it's as reasonable to think it was made before this yeah. as after. And here's some scriptural support for that. Yeah, that's what oh, I think. Sure. So again, I don't want to overdo that, but that, that does uh, sort of lean leans the scripture uh, very heavily toward a Catholic traditional view. Yeah, of totally. I totally see what you're saying. And without going too deeply into it, just a, a quick word about Joseph, because he is the sort of other half of this couple, right? Um, we don't get anything about Joseph here. We actually get very little about Joseph in, in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, but in the Gospel of Matthew, again, just want to say a quick word about his response to this. He will find out, this is in Matthew chapter 1 around verse 18, he finds out that Mary is pregnant, and uh-huh. he begins to freak out. And remember, he says, it says that he wants to divorce her right. because he's a righteous man. Right. And there's a couple of things that are very interesting in that. Um, there's two kind of major theories about what's, what the heck is happening with Joseph. One is what's called the suspicion theory, uh-huh. which I don't actually buy, which suggests that, okay, Joseph hears that Mary's pregnant. He knows he's not the father. And he's like, oh, you know, she says she has a miraculous impregnation, you know. Yeah. Yeah, right, kind of a thing. And so he assumes the worst, but we know we know he's righteous, so he decides to divorce her quietly uh-huh. so he doesn't have to shame her, which doesn't add up for a number of different reasons, right? The main thing is that, and some scholars have pointed this out, Joseph, if he's continually described as righteous, how can he then just sidestep the Levitical law? Because the law of the old, what it means to be righteous in first century Judaism means adherence to the law. It's actually kind of a legal term. And so to be righteous and not care about actually having a just punishment seems weird. Uh It's a weird theory all around. Uh But I think what's more likely is what's called the the reverential fear view. It's sometimes called that, which is this idea that that he learns from Mary what has happened, that Mary presumably told him what happened. And he responds with a reverential uh, awe. In other words, oh my gosh, I realize that God is doing something here. He has worked in the life of of this woman and I'm not worthy to be a part of it. Right. So that he's going to extricate himself from the betrothal, not because he thinks Mary has done something wrong, but because he sees the supreme holiness of what God is actually doing in her, which is why the angel then appears to him and says, Hey, chill out, Joseph. It's okay. Don't be afraid. Don't feel unworthy or inadequate to take her into your home. It's okay to do this. So I think that's a, a an important note. Yeah. So what happens next? Now I want to talk about the visitation for a little bit. So we get the first chunk of the Hail Mary prayer. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with you. And then we go to verse 36, and it says, The angel tells her, Behold, your kinswoman Elizabeth, who is her cousin, but quite a bit older cousin, so maybe a mother figure, in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. And Mary said, Behold, I'm the handmaid of the Lord. Let it be done unto me according to your word. And the angel departed. This is Mary's fiat. Her, okay, this is what's going to happen. I just, I have to stress Because again, I I think some of these stories that we've heard a million times, we've heard it at Christmas, I think there's a danger in just getting too used to them and too comfortable. We've heard them a million times, right? And we forget what's actually going on. What Mary is saying yes to in her mind because of the culture that she lives in is almost certain death. What she is saying yes to is certain death because 
once she fi- once her culture finds out that she is pregnant and they can do the math and they'll figure out that she hasn't consummated the marriage yet because there's a consummation party of some kind there's a consummation party everyone is present it's actually multi days and people are all gathered so and this is a small town for Nazareth's the, not a big place yeah Everyone is present for a party surrounding for the party. Okay. Well, actually, it's very, very awkward in the ancient Jewish world is that the marital couple would actually go into a room and the party would still be going on right outside of the That's room. It's not like they go off to another hotel. Right. So in tradition, so it's, it's incredibly awkward, but it also means everybody's kind of up everybody in business. Knows, everybody and knows what's going hasn't on. hasn't happened. So everybody would be able to do the math and know that Joseph is not either not the father right. of this child or right. the fatherhood preceded the... Absolutely. Right. Which, as a result, Mary would be stoned. And again, we're talking about a small town here. Nazareth's not big, so people will figure this out. And what it meant to be stoned, because that's what the law demands. Even if, even if she had—I mean, we have to talk about this bluntly. Yeah. Even if she had had sex with her betrothed partner before the t- time for the rite of consummation? Then he would be stoned, too. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. That's the, I mean, according to the law, this is that, you remember that woman who's caught in adultery in the gospel of John? Yeah. It's highly problematic that she is brought and the guy that she was with is not brought, which again, in in the narrative in John is showing that she's just a pawn to try to trap Jesus. Uh But yeah, the law would state that both are actually responsible. So one of two things is going to happen. Either Mary's going to be found out and put to death in the way that they would, I don't want to get into too many details, but as I understand it, part of the process of stoning was you would take a person and, and actually bury them in the ground. So that you would actually pack the dirt so their limbs and their arms would be incapacitated. So half of their body would be in the freezing cold earth and the other half would be baking in the sun, incapacitated. And from youngest to oldest, people in the village would come and start with smaller ones to larger ones, throwing rocks at you until they fractured your skull and broke your bones and then you would be left to rot. And again, I'm not trying to be gruesome. I'm not trying to be R-rated, but for a 13, 14, 15-year-old girl to be considering, okay, I've seen this happen. I know how this goes. I know what happens to women who are in my situation, and I see no other way out. However, I know that God is faithful, and I know that God is good. And so although I see only death, I'm saying yes because I trust in a God who can do the impossible. And I've, I've reflected in recent years on I don't think Mary is simply saying her fiat to, it's going to be embarrassing, it's going to be uncomfortable, people are going to give me dirty looks. She's saying, I see She's saying death. yes to the cross. I mean, She's saying the yes to the cross, Right. I think. And again, at, at the risk of overdoing it, because maybe I, there's minutia of this society I don't understand, but that, yes, that fiat, which is what marks Mary as the true, the number, the primary disciple of Jesus, the disciple of God, the one who says yes to God's will, despite the impossibility of what the world says— Took on a new meaning when I began to understand. But, but what Scott, that why, why was didn't like. th- why didn't it happen? Why weren't Mary and Joseph stoned then? I think there's two things. I think uh, number one, Mary flees to be with Elizabeth. I think that's step one. I don't oh. think she merely. I think it's part of it. I think she goes to help. I think she goes to serve. John Paul II makes a big deal about that, which is true. But I think part of it is she's going to seek refuge, to oh. seek protection for what's going to happen. I also think this is where there's not much said about Joseph. And again, we have to speculate about some of this and sort of reflect imaginatively because we're given very little information. But one of the things I think is most striking, what what do we call St. Joseph? We call St. Joseph the protector. Yeah. And so what is, based on the uh, encouragement the the angel gives him, what does Joseph have to step in and do? He's got to protect Mary. He protects the Holy Family. Why doesn't Mary get killed? As far as I can tell, simply because Joseph steps in the gap and Joseph steps in between. But what that means is that you have presumably 
a holy family who would probably have been mocked and ridiculed and given dirty looks. And that it's almost a scandal that they haven't been, Joseph being a righteous man, it's almost a scandal that they haven't been faced this punishment, both of them. Absolutely right. And so as a result, people probably view Joseph in one of two ways. Either you're lying and you actually did do this sinful thing, or you're a doormat and you're being taken advantage of by this woman who obviously did do this thing with somebody else. And either way, Joseph would have been probably quite looked down on, which I find really beautiful in the sense that how does Jesus spend a great deal of his public ministry being scorned, being mocked, being ridiculed, being tested, poked, prodded, and given dirty looks. And I just wonder in the the human, uh, in his humanity, why is he so well prepared for that? Oh, because he grew up watching his mom and dad do that and handling it with holiness and dignity. Wow. And again, I, we have to be a little bit imaginative here, but there's something consistent about that because he's going to spend a lot of his life doing that. Yeah. And he probably had to, learn, had to learn from the best, yeah. which I think is beautiful. Yeah. Okay. So Mary goes, uh, she makes haste, verse 39, and he rose and go, went to the hill country of So that's of Judea. why she's making haste. She's, she's I think so. I think so. I mean, again, I think she hears Elizabeth's pregnant. She's six yeah. months in. She does want to help. I think that's true. But she skedaddles and she goes up. Verse 40, she entered the house of Zechariah and she greeted Elizabeth. Hail, Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry and she said, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the voice of your greeting came to my ears, the babe in my womb leapt for joy. Okay, a couple things that are going on here right now. Remember, the words that Gabriel gives to Mary are basically lifting from Second Samuel chapter 7. It's when David has the, the idea that he wants to build a temple for God. And God so he is, it literally says in 2 Samuel 7, David says, I want to build a house for you, God. And God says, no, I don't want you to build me a house. Your son's going to do that. I want to build you into a house. And so he plays on the word house. You're going to be a kingdom. You're going to be a house. Yeah. Immediately before that was the story of the bringing of the Ark of the Covenant the tabernacle up to Jerusalem, where it was going to eventually permanently be. And the story of the bringing of the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem is interesting. It's in 2 Samuel 6, and it's basically the story of trying to move where they believe the presence of God is, along with the Ark and all the things that are the sign, the outward sign of God's presence among us. And um, somebody, I think I mentioned this last time, somebody kind of holds it wrong. He actually kind of trips and, and holds the ark wrong and touches it weird. And he is struck dead because it's kind of a fearful thing. Yeah. And so David then approaches it with real fear and awe. Yeah. And he actually says the words, how is it that the presence of my Lord should come to me? Wow. And then because of that fear, that reverential fear, he actually takes it to the hill country of Judea. And he goes to a house of a guy named Obededon, which is in the hill country, and he stays there for three months, which is exactly the length of time that Mary stays with Elizabeth. And then he brings it to Jerusalem, and when he comes to Jerusalem, it says he leapt before it. He danced, remember, Uh in his underwear? Yeah, right. He leapt before it, but the word there is leaping, which is exactly what John the Baptist is doing. So in a certain sense, this whole scene is a recasting of what happens with David and the Ark of the Covenant back in 2 Samuel 6, which is significant. Why? We talk about Mary as the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the New Covenant covenant. Do you remember what the ark in the Old Testament held in it? There was three things. There was the presence of God, the Shekinah, but accompanying the Shekinah was what? I was going to say Shekinah. Yeah, the Shekinah is true. You're absolutely right. Yeah, some leftover manna, right, from the, I don't know how they kept it, but some leftover manna. The stone tablets of the law, and one other thing. David's Aaron (laughs) Staff. Aaron Staff, right. Scott was making staff symbols. Oh, I'm glad you know. I didn't think you'd get that one. No, I got it. 
So what do you have? You have the bread come down from Which heaven. It's like a crozier. Aaron's crozier. Yeah, it's kind of like a crozier. So you have the bread come down from heaven. You have the law mm-hmm. and you have the priesthood. That's what's in the Ark of the Covenant. What's inside Mary? The presence of God. What's the presence of God? The bread come down from heaven, the new law, and the high priesthood. So she's. that's why we talk about her as the Ark of the Covenant. It's not but like it's a nice also, metaphor. It's also the, the way we talk about the Lord as priest, prophet, and king, and in the Ark of the Covenant, those things are contained. Are, absolutely are, are, right. Are fused together. Yeah, that's absolutely it's right. It's an incredible thing. It's also an incredible thing about our own baptism because it's a reminder that we're, we're heirs, not... We're heirs to those things, to that king, that honest to God kingship, and that's absolutely things. right. And for someone's priesthood, all the more humbling would it be. Wow. Yeah, that's absolutely right. If you understand that, then what I, I skipped over something in the uh, announcement from Gabriel, which is when she asks about how this is going to happen, she's like, "Well, I don't have a husband." We talked about that. The answer that the angel gives it's in verse thirty-five. He says, "The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you." which is a really important line. It's the word uh, episkedze. And episkedze is used back in Exodus chapter 40. And it's used in Exodus chapter 40, guess when? When the presence of the Lord, when the Shekinah comes and overshadows the Ark of the Covenant. Uh So it's literally the word that's used when the presence of God comes into the tabernacle, Uh which is really neat. So she goes up, she's with Elizabeth. Elizabeth makes this proclamation. What we we read in verse 42, it says, she exclaimed with a loud cry. And the word that Luke uses for exclaimed is actually a word that in the Old Testament is reserved exclusively for what priests do when they worship before the Holy of Holies, before the tabernacle, which is interesting because remember, Elizabeth's from the high priestly family. And so the word that Luke chooses to put in there is a priestly word because she is, she's not an ordained priest, I know, but she's from the priestly family exclaiming, worshiping before the new Ark of the Covenant, which is really significant. And what she says to Mary is, blessed are you among women. And I think that's one of the most important things that she says because blessed among women, I don't know if you've heard this before, blessed among women is a term that only shows up to my knowledge three times in the entirety of the Bible. The only times that it's used is in the story of a woman named J.L., a woman named Judith, both in the Old Testament and then here with Mary. And the significant things about this story is this. So in the story of Jael, Jael shows up in the book of Judges. And during the book of Judges, quick crash course story of what's going on. In the book of Judges, Israel is at war, as they usually are. I think they were with the Philistines at the time. And as they're at battle, the battle's not going well. And the war is not going well. And one of the, the Philistine leaders, one of the enemy commanders, gets kind of separated from his troops and he takes refuge in the tent of this woman thinking that he can overpower her. You know, she's just some peasant woman. So he ducks in her tent. He's like, Hey, you have to hide me and you have to protect me. And it's JL, this woman. And she says, Oh, totally cool. That's fine. And it literally says she takes him and she tucks him into the bed. She brings him a warm glass of milk. And then she takes a tent stake and shoves it through his temple. And then she goes out and essentially is like, hey, you guys, I beat the commander. I killed him. You can't him. see it in the podcast, but my eyebrows shot I know they did, which I was happy. Yeah, wow. And as a response, one of the judges, Deborah, says to her, blessed are you among women because mm-hmm. you've done what nobody else could do Yeah, because you shoved a tent stake through this guy's head. Yeah. 
it shows up again in the book of Judith, and Judith is one of the Deuterocanonical books, but she's living during the time of the Babylonian captivity where there's this Babylonian force that has overtaken her village, and the commander, the leader, is a guy named Holofernes, and he is oppressing and kind of lording over this village. And so Judith, who apparently, we're told in the book of Judith, is very attractive. She says she literally kind of dolls herself up and gets herself looking really nice, um, goes over to Holofernes' place where she kind of seduces him, gets him drunk, has a lot of wine, gets him into bed where she cuts his head off with his own sword and then comes out and tells everyone, hey, everybody, I killed our occupier. Wow, Benedicta too in Moliere boost, am I right? Am I? <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> Blessed are you among women. Wow. Which is what they say. Right. Blessed are you among women. And the only other time, to my knowledge, that it's used in what, is when Elizabeth says it to Mary. Wow. And the only commonality is... Well, I don't know because Mary has not... Uh, killed anyone, but perhaps she is overcoming the occupiers. So what do the other two do? Kill they, a kill, bad guy. they kill an enemy of the people of God by doing what? Striking a death blow to the head. Oh, striking his head. Striking yeah. the head. It's the only common feature between those two folks. Wow. They kill an enemy of the people of Israel, the people of God, by striking a death blow to the head. Why does Elizabeth say this? What is what does she know? What is the sense? I, I don't know. Is it coincidental or is it the working of the Holy Spirit? It's incredible. That, this is an affirmation of Mary as the new Eve. Absolutely right. So back in Genesis 3, it says, you know, she will crush your head because it's through him that she will crush the head of the evil one, which is, again, remarkable. And lest you think that that I'm stretching it with this, there's a church in a place called Ein Karem, which is uh, in the Middle East is believed to be the traditional birthplace of John the Baptist. So the home of Elizabeth and Zechariah. And there's a fresco that dates from the second century, which, and I've never seen anything else like this in the world, but it shows Mary flanked by uh, an icon of Judith on one side and Jael on the other. Wow. So the early church got this. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, this is Right, it. absolutely. Which I think is very, very cool. Did the fathers of the church write about it as well? Not that I'm aware of, but maybe, but maybe they have. I'm not sure. custom of it because it's It, there, it yeah. exists, but, yeah. But to the degree to which I'm not sure. So as... John the Baptist leaps from womb. Mary launches into her Magnificat of all the ironic reversals. Interestingly enough, Mary's Magnificat is a pretty direct quote of the song of Hannah when she's about to give birth to the prophet Samuel, if you remember that story. Hannah was uh, infertile and and struggled with this and prayed to God for a son. And when she finds out she's going to bear a son, she sings the, the, it's essentially called the Magnificat of the Old Testament about how God has changed all of our fortunes. It's this idea that if in a world where God is sovereign, nothing has to remain the way that it is. Is there supposed to be an ironic reversal? So fill the hunger with good things, rich sent away empty, um, struck down the mighty from their thrones, exalted the lowly. Then helped his servant Israel, and remembered his mercy. Is it supposed to be, we Israel have been waiting a long time. Is there a kind of dark irony there that God has finally remembered his mercy? Uh, The word, well, I don't know what the Greek would say, but the Hebrew sense is the word zakar, which is the word for remember, which Uh doesn't mean remember in the sense of like, Oh, I, I forgot. I forgot my car keys. I I need to zakar them or something. It's actually what, uh, what, um, 
Remember that when Joseph, the Old Testament Joseph is in prison, he says to the butler and the baker when they're released from prison, hey, remember me before yeah. Pharaoh. It's what God says when okay. Noah and company are in the ark. God remembered Noah. It's what the good thief says to Jesus. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Uh-huh. Not in the sense of just don't forget about me, but now is the decisive moment to that do. God will act. Right. So yeah. God didn't forget about Noah on right. the ark. Well, he just scrubbing the kitchen counter. And he's like, oh, shoot, Noah's on the ark. But it's, it's the moment of decisive acting. Yeah. Okay. Chronologically. Why does it come when it does? We don't know, but that's what the sense of Zakar okay. has. Thank you. And so it's a, there's a good pedigree for that word throughout the Old yeah. Testament. Yeah. So Mary sings this. Then we kind of had our segue from last time where John the Baptist is born. But I want to fast forward us to chapter two. And here we get the birth of Jesus, right? And what's remarkable about the birth of Jesus, according to the Gospel of Luke, we get a strikingly small amount of details. It's very, very sparse. And we actually get, we get more mentions of the uh, census that's going on than we actually do about the birth, which I actually find fascinating. But it says in chapter 2, verse 1, in those days, which days? Oh, the days of Herod. Remember, we've already been set up for the, the bad days. In the days of Herod, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, and Caesar Augustus um, he was a very big deal. Caesar Augustus, I actually want to read you something that was found uh, in present-day Turkey a long time ago that I think is one of the best examples of how the ancient world viewed Caesar Augustus. He read from 27 BC through 14 AD. So he's the Caesar when Jesus is born into the New Testament when Paul, Paul's dealing with Tiberius. But he, Caesar Augustus was the one that established the Pax Romana. And he famously went before the Roman Senate once and demanded that the Roman Senate declare his father Julius, remember Julius Caesar, the Shakespeare play about it? He demanded that the Roman Senate declare Julius Caesar a god. Right. And as soon as they did this, he declared himself Divus Filius, the son of God, right. which became this you know, democratically bestowed title that he became divine, the yeah. divine son. And he minted coins with himself. But there's an inscription that dates back to, to the year 9 BC in, in present-day Turkey that was basically this birthday card that someone wrote to Caesar Augustus, which I find really fascinating. And it says this, Whereas providence divinely ordered our lives and created with zeal and magnificence the most perfect good for our lives by producing Augustus and filling him with virtue for the benefication of mankind, sending us and after us a savior who would put an end to war to establish all things. And whereas Caesar Augustus, when he appeared, exceeded the hopes of everyone who had come before, he anticipated the Evangelium, the good news, not only by surpassing all the benefactors born before him and not leaving those who came after him any hope of surpassing him, whereas the birthday of the god Caesar marked for the world the beginning of the good news for mankind. Wow. So the term Evangelion, where we get evangelization, existed before the birth of Jesus. And culturally speaking, it was applied to the birthday of Caesar, mm-hmm. Augustus, the son of God, who was the one who brought peace, the prince of peace in a certain sense. So everything about the story of Jesus is you meant to usurp that wrong authority that had been bestowed on this worldly leader, which is, I think, how Luke kind of sets up the story, yeah. right? In those days, this decree went out from Caesar Augustus, oh, we all know who that is, that the world should be enrolled so that he could tax the world. He says this was the first enrollment when Quirinius was the governor of Syria and each went out to be enrolled, each to his own city. And Joseph also had to go up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which was called Bethlehem because he was of the house and the lineage of David to be enrolled with Mary and his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to be delivered. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and she wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them at the inn. 
that's the story, which I mean, it's remarkable. And for, for the, the amount of knowledge that we have culturally speaking of this story, it's a couple of verses. Yeah. And again, if you paid attention to it, it says more about Caesar than it does about Jesus. Yeah. So what does it say about Jesus? So it does have a little bit, but there's uh there's just a couple things that I want to kind of highlight. And this, the story of Jesus's birth is, is remarkable for um, the extent of kind of cultural awareness we all have of it. Everybody has a particular image in their mind when they think about the birth of Jesus. Yeah, right? totally. We've all got nativity set and manger scenes. And I've seen like inflatable manger scenes in people's front yards. And like, we just have a perfectly kind of, is that like, should I not have that? You have the biggest inflatable snowman I've ever seen I do seen because in my, my son picked it up, but I, I was thinking it. about getting him an inflatable manger scene because he I loves would. inflatable stuff. But now I feel like I can't. Now that okay? I said it out loud, I'm not totally sure there is an inflatable major scene or not. Well, I'm going to find out. All right. Well, you find it. I'm, I'm all for it. But I, I do. So the, the problem I have with it, I, I like there is there's good and bad, right? We want familiarity with something that is that has the importance of the birth of the Messiah, right? This is a huge deal. But I think um, sometimes there's the danger of maybe over sanitizing the story in a way that doesn't quite do justice to what's actually happening. Yeah, totally. How do you mean? Well, so so what's going on? I, I want to talk for just a couple minutes about Joseph, right? And Joseph becomes kind of one of the key players to this story. So the census happens, and you know, again, what what the story, what Luke is trying to demonstrate is Caesar's dominance over the land. That he is demanding things that are putting all sorts of little narratives in motion. But what Luke is going to juxtapose is that even though Caesar's reach is vast, even going into the census, it's actually Jesus who is the true king of the world. And so it's going to be flipped like the Magnificat suggested. But oh, Joseph, yeah, yeah. back to Joseph. And, and here's something I'm, I'm not super clear on. By the Roman law, Joseph would have had to have gone back to his, his ancestral homeland of, or ancestral town of Bethlehem, right? It's not totally clear to me whether he would have needed to bring Mary along or not. Because, again, legally speaking, he's the head of the family. Females didn't have the, the standing in society. Oh. So sometimes I wonder, like, why would you drag your super pregnant wife, you know, on this very difficult journey to a place where you actually don't have a place to stay? And, and this goes back to what we kind of talked about earlier. I think this is Joseph's rule as protector. And I think the two, two things that might be happening here, number one, Joseph cannot let Mary out of her sight because he knows how she is looked upon. He knows what's going on culturally. He knows the circumstances of this pregnancy. And I think as protector, he's not prepared to let Mary out of his sight. So he's, he's taking her with him either way. And on the other hand, you know, knowing that the birth is imminent, he just might need to be there. And I don't know what Mary's social situation was back in Nazareth. Again, with the situation of the pregnancy and the rumor mill and the rumors and the things that people are probably saying about the Holy Family, I don't know if it would have been safe for her to stay there without Joseph. So one way or the other, yeah. does that make any sense? Yeah, it does. Wow. And we have to speculate a little. Yeah, but sure, one but way or the okay. other, he drags super pregnant Mary down yeah. to Bethlehem. But here's the thing about Joseph. Joseph, I'm, I'm pretty convinced, knows who he is and knows his family lineage and knows that he is the direct descendant of the kingdom of David, yeah. which has gone into hiding in reality, but as far as anyone knows, had been destroyed on the battlefield at Jericho so many hundreds of years ago, right? right? Of which Herod has now usurped and called himself the king of the Jews and that Caesar is lording over in this terrible circumstance. But 
again, I'm convinced that Joseph probably knows who he is, but I'm also convinced that the rest of his family know exactly who he is too, because family ties are tight in this culture. Mm-hmm. And this, this is a culture that's an honor culture. It's a, it's a communal culture. It's not individualistic the way that, you know, we kind of value in this culture. Everybody knew everybody else's business. So I guarantee you, everybody knew Joseph's real identity, even if they couldn't really publicize it or kind of act on anything. But that raises a really big question. So again, the story that we all kind of know, they go to Bethlehem and it says there is no room for them in the what? In. Yeah. So the, the traditional translate, well, one of the translations is in. It's the, the Greek word katalima. And katalima, the one thing we know that it doesn't mean is in. Oh, this really? is where sometimes I take issue with some of the translations. Wait, Scott, you are just deconstructing everything today, aren't you? <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to ruin word. Christmas for anyone. The search for the historical nativity continues oh, mercilessly. Here we go. Here we go. Well, there's a reason that this is actually significant. So, what does Catalima mean? It means the place. Oh, there was no room it, for them in a place. In the in a place, it really is completely vague, or the the space. The only other time it's used in the Gospel of Luke is for the place for which they're going to celebrate the Passover meal at the Last Supper. Yeah. So the upper room is called the Catalima. Oh. There's another word for in because remember that Luke also has the Good Samaritan story where the Good Samaritan takes the guy who's been beat up on the side of the road and he puts him in an inn, but it's yeah. a different word for like a commercial hotel. Yeah. So it's not an inn in the kind of traditional. It's not like they, they go and all the best Westerns are full. So if you're going, if, if not only if you're Joseph, if you're anyone and you're going to your hometown where all of your extended family is, what do you do? You don't stay at a hotel. Like even for the most part in our modern culture, right? It'd be hard to imagine. It's hard for me to wrap my brain around some family member, a relative, a cousin, an uncle, an aunt coming to my house even at a holiday, even at a time that w- where it's really crowded and maybe there's other people staying and just telling them, I, I have no room for you. You can't sleep on a couch. There's no guest room. There's not a sleeping bag in the corner that I can put oh, you up so at. you think maybe they were, because they were socially ostracized because of the pregnancy of Mary. Scott is nodding vigorously now because he's so proud that it's I figured not vigorously, but you think that maybe because of the ostracism uh, that comes along with Mary's pregnancy there's no room for them in the family place because can you imagine that? I mean, can this you is imagine speculative, a, but it's entirely it plausible, right? But can you imagine a scenario in which a family member shows up and you're like, tough break. Sorry, man, there's no hotels around and I don't have a corner of a floor that you can sleep on. No, it's except, just hard for me to imagine. Except, I mean, that is true when, when that is true, like when someone's like, well, I'm coming home to visit my family, but I'm going to yep. stay in a hotel. It's usually yeah, yeah, because there's some estrangement, right? There's some sure. tension. I don't want to stay at my parents' house because of X, Y, and Z, so we're going to stay at a hotel. But that would be the people's, the, the, the person's choice to stay there. Yeah, even if someone showed up at your house and, and you said, said no. will you house me? That would be like someone could make a choice to stay at a hotel for space reasons, whatever. Yeah. And then add to that, what if they're, they have a nine-month pregnant wife? Yeah, and you're like, sorry, man. Sorry, yeah. man. This is speculative, but it certainly gives a different, very different dimension to the notion of what happens when they get to Bethlehem. It does. So here's the thing. So not only is in an honor culture, in a, in, in a communal culture where there's society and culture and family means something, it would be a sign of dishonor. And that, we say dishonor pretty lightly. Mm-hmm. In the ancient culture, this, a dishon- to dishonor yourself is a huge deal. But it would be a dishonor. <laughs> If you turned away a family member, yeah. especially one who had a nine-month pregnant wife. Oh, even if they were, uh, even if the pregnancy was under the wrong circumstances. I don't know. But that, that's where it gets a little, there's, there's some questions. So here's what I think is happening. Most houses in the ancient world, right in the Palestinian region around Bethlehem, 
would have had traditionally houses had like a main room where everything took place. It's where the kitchen was and the family room. It's usually where people slept. Yeah, an open and the, concept floor plan. You an might open concept it. floor plan. And there was always a guest room. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it was called a Catalima, right? The place where you would house guests because oh. housing guests, if they came to town, was a very big deal in Jewish culture, right? They would also have, so, you know, we have this image of everybody's house in Bethlehem had its own little farm in the backyard, like the stable, right? But the stable thing is, I think, where the image kind of breaks down because we're talking about a fairly impoverished place, a a peasant town, and most houses didn't have like stables in the backyard. So what you would do, because most families had animals. But your animals would be inside with you. The animals would come inside the house. And oftentimes there was like a lower part of like the foyer, the entryway of the house where you would essentially, it's kind of like a garage where you would literally bring the animals in for the night and you would kind of park the animals and there would be kind of cut into the floor what we call mangers, which are the feeding troughs where the animals who are kind of inside for the night so they didn't get stolen or robbed or too cold they would kind of eat the food. And so what it seems... Oh, but those wouldn't be made of wood. They would be more like um, built into the floor. They could be made of wood, but they also could be just cut into you know, oh, whatever material okay. the house was. And sometimes some of the houses, especially in this region, were actually hewn into caves, into cliff sides. And so this part of the house might have been a cave, which there's a traditional belief that uh, Constantine built a, a shrine over where he thought the birthplace was, which was in a cave, which actually kind of works. So what I think might be going on is that whatever family they're with, there's no room for them in the guest room. There's no room. We're not willing to put you in the place of honor. We're not willing to house you. But maybe you can sleep with the animals. Oh, maybe laid we can him put in a manger the because there was no room for them in an inn. We put them in the animal place because there was no room for them. Because in it the would bring shame on us to cast you out on the street. So oh. we're not going to do that. So it's not that they were ostracized because of the premarital pregnancy of Mary, but they were put in a lower place. A really lower place. Again, wow. imagine a family member comes up, one who happens to have a nine-month pregnant wife, and you're like, well, you can't stay here, but I'll let you sleep in the garage. I'll move, you know, I'll move the car over and you guys can sleep there. And maybe give birth in there. So without trying to, you know, again, deconstruct the story, the reason I think this is important, there's two reasons I think it's important. Number one, for the circumstances into which not only Jesus is born, but the circumstances into which he grows. Because I think this is important, and I think it culturally is likely that the Holy Family was really, really ostracized. Not just by neighbors, not just by the people at the grocery store, but by their own family members who aren't willing to give them a guest room or a bed in the, you know, in the main part of the house who, um, you know, sequester them in the garage in the place where the animals eat and the baby has to be born and put in the feeding trough, which would have been a place of shame. But again, the family's kind of saving face. They're not casting him out. We know he's the direct heir to the king. So we can't just cast him out because that would bring shame on us, but we're not really willing to give them the full-blown guest experience. But it's important because this idea of ostracization, the idea of not only Jesus being born in humility, but Jesus being born in rejection. So yeah, there's humble circumstances that we've always traditionally tied to the birth, but we don't always tie the idea of rejection of your family, rejection of the people who love you, which is going to be what sets up the rest of Jesus's ministry is someone who is rejected and cast out by his own family. And imagine Jesus being raised by parents who became really good at dealing with people rejecting them, at people bad-mouthing them, at people being willing to turn their backs on them, even family members. And so the circumstances of Jesus' birth actually points us toward the circumstances of his death. Yeah. I, I just want to go back, if I can. I want to connect this vision of the Holy Family to the Magnificat. Mm. Yeah. We talked about the Magnificat as a series of reversals. Yes. But 
casting down the mighty from their thrones and lifting up the lowly. Yeah. Actually, Joseph in, in his own family is perhaps the mighty, right? I mean, is the one who is... He's the, the one who's heir the to the throne. Heir to the throne. And, and while all of Israel wouldn't have yeah. recognized that, maybe his family I bet they would. would have. And so there's a way in which that's prophetic um, in the sense of how... How how the mighty would have been cast down by the presence by their acceptance of Jesus? Yes, because um, it's not just oh all the all, all the, the bad all the corrupt are, bad kings are going to be right. cast down. No, even the good. Because again, this is the trajectory of Jesus's ministry. Yeah. They will hate you because of me. Yeah, and, so and Simeon later on is going to foretell this, this to Mary guy, directly. Joseph, who might have been mighty in his throne as a sort of yeah pretender yeah. to the throne, and the fact that he doesn't actually have it, not a, right, a, right, but. Is will lose that mightiness even among his own family will lose his esteem. I mean, he, he, because of what? Because of the presence of the Lord. Because of Jesus. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which I I think is profound. So I know we're speculating a little bit, but um, it's significant. But the other reason it's significant is this: it's what happens next. So I'm in chapter two, verse eight, and it says this: in that region, in that same region, there were shepherds out in the field, and they were keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. So first of all— Don't tell me that the word angel doesn't mean angel. Don't tell me it can no, be No, it does. No, okay, angels good. are I just cool. didn't know how much— Am I deconstructing too much? <laughs> no, Am I ruining I just, Christmas? No, no, no. I just—I'm glad to know that angel means angel. Angels are angels. Well, okay. I means messenger. <laughs> it does. That's what it means. Okay. Um, but what appears around the angels— the glory of the Lord. And what is Israel desperately waiting for the return of to the temple? Oh, this is the Shekinah? It's, I don't it's know. It's evocative of it's the It's evocative of the Shekinah, at least. Wow, right? the cloud that was in the Holy of Holies. Yeah. The cloud that led Israel through the desert and yeah. all of these things. Is shoning around the shepherds. And we have, again, kind of a sanitized view of shepherds. But in the first century, in, in first century Jewish worlds, Shepherds were one of the most looked down upon classes of people. They were considered ritually unclean. They were cast out. They were considered gross because they had to deal with, you know, things of animals and sometimes they would die. So they were considered by the Pharisees unclean and they were the lowliest of members of society. Again, and there were there were carnies out in the field taking care of their rides by night. I'm just trying to make counts. an analogy, but it would be something like that. Yeah, Show that's fair. That's right? fair. Okay. And again, we we don't. The reason I think we we miss this one is that the scriptures, I think, ironically in part, really highlight, especially in the Old Testament, shepherds who become very very important. Yeah, King Moses David. was a shepherd. King David was a shepherd. But that alone, even culturally, should make you think. Whoa! God used a shepherd to actually become the king. God used a shepherd to lead the people of Israel out of the Exodus, and we miss that because we're like, "Oh, shepherds—they have cute lambs," and and we already know cute. about the good shepherd, and we already know about the good shepherd. But there's an irony to that. So, as the King of Kings, as the Lord of Lords, as the Shekinah is coming back into the world, who is the first to get the message? But the lowliest members of society. And so it says the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were filled with fear because this is freaky as uh, both Zechariah and, and Mary Zechariah were was filled, filled with fear. And Mary. Mary. Well, yeah, that's right. Because they recognize there's something important here. And the angel said to them, be not afraid for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Evangelion of great joy, which will come to all the people for to you is born this day in the city of David, which is Bethlehem, the traditional birthplace of David himself, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. So the shepherds, even though they were outcast, even though they were considered unclean, they're waiting for the Messiah like everybody else. They're waiting for the glory of the Lord to return to Israel just like everybody else. And they recognize, just like everybody else, that the one who holds the title of Lord and Christ and King is Caesar, the, uh -huh. the sham reality. Right. 
And he says, the angel says that this is it. The time is now he's being born. And if you're a shepherd, you're probably thinking, oh, cool. That's great news. There's no way on the face of the earth I'm ever going to be able to see him like that. That's cool. But I'm not going to be welcome in a palace. Yeah. I'm not going to be welcome in a governor's mansion, in a praetorium. Right. But it says the angel says, this is the sign for you. What's the sign that you're going to find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying Again, read it outside of our so used to context, lying in an animal feeding trough. So there's going to be a baby wrapped in literally strips of cloth, which is how Palestinian peasants actually still wrap their newborn babies to this day. There's going to be a baby wrapped in the way that you guys wrap your newborns, lying in a feeding trough, which maybe actually some of you were laid in that when you were born and you lay your children in that. And the reason this is so significant is that the sign for the shepherds of this reality is that this king is actually accessible to you. Yeah, you might feel like you're going to be cast out of a governor's mansion or a palace, but man, I understand what it is to be wrapped in swaddling clothes. I understand what it is to lay a baby in a feeding trough because that's all you've got. Whoa, maybe the Messiah that we've been waiting for is actually for all people, not just the mighty not just the powerful, not just you know the bourgeois or whatever it is. And it's fascinating to me and really, really beautiful that the first sign of the birth is to the lowliest members of society, inviting them literally to come and witness the glory of the Lord. Yeah. So I find it kind of fascinating. It's a beautiful um, image of uh, the, the, the sort of dominance of... The king in the sight of the world, the worldly emperor, and the lowliness, the being cast off of the true kings. And the, the, uh, I'm, I'm actually going to be reflecting on your insight into the Magnificat for a while because I hadn't really thought that much about that. But what the Magnificat entails, and it's going to be highlighted when Mary receives her uh, prophecy from Simeon, is that what it means for the, the mighty to be cast down is that those of us, it's what Jesus says, right? If you want to be first, you must be last. And if you want to be greatest, you must be a servant. We actually get to live out the Magnificat. And that's what Jesus is literally doing here. What are we going to talk about next week? So next week, we're going to round out the three couples who set the stage for Jesus with our prophetic couple of Simeon and Anna. We're going to talk a little bit about what the presentation in the temple actually was. So in episode one of this Advent mini season, we talked about the priestly couple of uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah. In episode two, right now, we have talked about the regnal couple, the kingly couple. I would have said royal, but those are good synonyms. Royal is better, the royal couple (laughs) of Mary and Joseph. And in episode three, we will talk about um, a prophetic pair. Absolutely. Okay. Sunday School is a production of Pillar Media, an Ed and JD production. I'm your host, JD Flynn, and we are joined by our Sunday School teacher, wrapped himself in swaddling clothes, Scott Powell. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira, and we will be back next week for a prophetic pairing. <laughs>